Hello and welcome to the final That HR podcast of 2019 and the decade. I'm Lily Howlett and I'm wearing some jingle antlers. And I'm Sean Palmer and I'm wearing a Santa hat. It's also got a bell on it. Today we are getting festive and also reflective. That we are. We have got some Baileys. And we've also invited some fantastic industry experts to discuss some of the top stories of 2019 with us and make their predictions for 2020 and beyond. (laughs) Thank you very much, Lily. Shall we cheers? We shall cheers. Hey! (laughs) Merry Christmas, Siobhan. Merry Christmas, Lily. Moya Green and Hannah Netherton will be joining us to discuss the gender pay gap and why, despite new reporting requirements, companies are still facing high-profile pay discrimination claims. And the CIPD's John Boys and Nikki Costa from the London HR Connection will be breaking down the last 10 years in HR with us and making their predictions for the next 10. Will computers run us by that point? Do they already? Will our pensions be worth more or less than a packet of crisps and a pint? We'll be putting those and some sensible questions to them a bit later. And, of course, Tim Pointer is back to advise another listener with their workplace worries in Tim's Pointers. That's all to come. One of the most pressing workplace trends of the past few years, and one that will have affected almost every HR professional in the UK, is the need to report on and tackle the gender pay gap. Employers with more than 250 staff have been obliged to publish their gender pay gap since 2017. Many have been dismayed by the findings, but they have insisted that any discrepancies are due to progression opportunities for women or historical imbalances. Nobody, they tell us, is paid differently for doing the same job. BBC presenter Samira Ahmed recently took her employer to court, seeking nearly £700,000 in back pay, as she claims she was paid significantly less than Jeremy Vine for the same or similar work. Supermarkets have faced claims that male warehouse workers do the same job and for more money as female checkout staff. And plenty of employers will be nervous about what female employees might find if they could see the salaries of their male colleagues. Joining us now, we've got former Royal Mail CEO Moya Green, who recently launched the Me Too Pay campaign. Also with us is Hannah Netherton, a partner at law firm CMS. Hannah's an employment lawyer with expertise in gender pay issues. Let me start by asking Moya. Um, I mean, we all know that, that there are pay gaps, but is there such a thing as unequal pay? And how can that be when it's been illegal for for so many years? I think that's a really good question, Lily. And I have to say that um, for a lot of us, the signatories in our group, I think we were pretty surprised because we thought, you know, women doing the same job as a man, uh, that's been illegal for a very long time. And so we thought we really had that one nailed. The gender pay gap is different The gender pay gap is going to require a whole network of changes in society Mm. in order to eliminate it because um, women don't in sufficient numbers go into the occupational areas that tend to pay more. They don't have the luxury of being able to work forever 100-hour weeks if they have families Uh, They probably end up having some breaks in their employment. So all of those things combined leave women often working more part-time roles than men do. All of those things come together, and they, in aggregate, give us a gender pay gap. And we can fix those things, and we have to work very hard to fix those things. 
But what this group of women was surprised to see in the year 2019 is women working side by side by men under the same job description, doing the same work, but being paid less. Mm. We really thought that kind of clear discrimination in pay, we'd kind of put to rest. And and, uh, so, in short, that's the reason why it was so easy to get a large group of very senior women to put a flag up and say, just a second here. Uh, That really doesn't require much effort if you've got a woman working side by side by it with a man under the same job description, you would think it would be a non-issue. Hannah, why do some women not get the same money as men in similar or the same jobs? What practices lead to this and when does it become illegal? I think there are lots of different reasons why people end up with different pay. Maybe they've started on a different pay or they've progressed at different rates and and some of the points that Moya has mentioned would would definitely come into play there as well. Many of these factors are institutional, they're ingrained in organisational cultures. When it becomes illegal is when a woman's role can be compared with a man's in the same workplace and they're performing equal work and there are various different types of of equal work. Um, And when you look at that equal work, there is a direct or indirect discriminatory reason for a disparity in their pay. Mm. There can be a counter-argument to that type of unequal pay claim and that's known as the material factor defence basically where where there's a genuine reason why there are differences in pay that aren't tainted by sex and there aren't any hard and fast rules in law of what those types of um, reasons might be or what does constitute material factor but an obvious one is performance X performs better than Y at the same job and is therefore paid more Um, possibly also seniority if, even if they have the same job description, market forces, skilled worker shortages, historical reasons, or perhaps geographic reasons. But I think what's clear from all of those different examples that I've men- mentioned is that the position can be very nuanced and it's very easy to see how um, issues of sex can taint each of those different points, given the issues that Moyes touched on in terms of um, career gaps, returning to work, part-time working, etc. I mean, Moya, you've mentioned, um, you know, well, with the, the Me Too Pay campaign, it's obviously focused on uh, the financial sector, but are there are there any other sectors that are affected widely by this issue? Actually, what we found out is that it's more prevalent than any of us thought, and it's everywhere. Mm. And we are not just focused on the financial sector. Many of the women who became signatories represent the full spectrum of uh, areas, everything from the arts to science to construction to finance. I think construction and finance have bigger issues because they have been very traditionally male-dominated, and they have very big segments of the compensation that is variable pay bonuses and L-tips and things like that if you're senior in those areas, which allows you to import a lot of judgment into what an individual should receive. And so this issue of material difference and nuancing 
can become, you know, quite disputable. You know, mm-hmm. you can you can have an argument about it. Is it really a difference? Or is that the real factor or is there something else? Is it is it simply because this woman is willing to work for less? Yeah. You know, we've seen cases where women are doing outstanding jobs and, you know, in fact, their performance ratings are outstanding, but they're paid less. For my way of looking at it, um, that should be wrong. And that's uh, the fact that she was willing to work for less. We would rather talk about anything in this country before we would talk about pay. Mm -hmm. And we need to have more transparency around this so that women are not being disadvantaged from the get-go, so that women are able to at least make a credible argument around uh, whether their pay is, uh, in fact, appropriate or not. So that's one of the other things that this campaign is going to try to do. We're going to try to put a lot of information first. I think the information that Hannah has supplied today, a lot of that has been news to me, Hannah, that these things are legitimate material differences. You know, market forces, well, anybody can argue that. You know, you can say that the the market for a talent in this particular area, if it's a small company, is going to be different than the market for exactly the same talent and caliber if it's a big company. And I'm willing to accept that that may be uh, relevant. But what we have seen is working side by side in the same company, people, sometimes women with more experience, with better performance ratings, still being paid less, particularly in areas where you have a high degree of judgment being allowed, such as uh, happens in some sectors where a very big portion of the overall compensation is variable and discretionary. So until we sort of get away from the taboo of talking about pay, we're not going to really know whether these are legitimate material differences or just a rationale for paying a woman less. Yeah, it's a really interesting point there about the British culture and um, a, lack, a, a lack of transparency around or, or desire to talk about pay. It's interesting. The Norwegian model is that everyone's tax returns are available online, so you know what your next door neighbour is being paid, and there is utter transparency uh, in in the way that that operates. I, I think we're probably quite a way away from that type of system in the UK, but it's an interesting comparison. I mean, this is a really interesting issue in HR in itself because, I mean, women are increasingly being encouraged to ask about their pay inside their organisation. But I think um, it's interesting to wonder how how should HR professionals respond to those questions, Hannah? Well, that's I mean, it's always a very difficult question for HR. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I think in the first instance, it's something that they're going to want to look into and look back at those pay review processes, look back at the career history, look back at the performance ratings, speak to managers about why decisions were made and look at whether there's any merit in the concern that has been raised. Absolutely, that should be the first starting point. And one of the things that I'm seeing increasingly um, that HR are getting involved in is is trying to drive regular equal pay audits um, and oversight of the business decisions that are being made to provide that, as Moya mentioned, that check-in. 
that's the helicopter view of is this right is is this working the way it should be day by day kind of minute minutiae steps that are being made might feel like the right thing to do at the time but when you take a step back and you think well actually did we maybe not progress that person as much as we should have done for some other factor that perhaps was just at the back of our mind that subconscious bias that everyone has um, that can impact day-to-day business decisions yeah I think it's a good way to kind of um, for HR to kind of look back and as you say like check whether someone's been held back for for other reasons but I mean more are you a, are you a fan of equal pay audits do you think they're they're beneficial honestly I don't know because I, I guess you'd have to see how they're being done and how rigorous they are and are they trying to uh, protect against some kind of a suit or are they really trying to detect whether something is wrong yeah a, a lot depends upon the motivation for the review I'll tell you just from my experience though it's very easy for a company to go into defensive mode immediately as soon as a claim gets launched because you want to believe that whatever you're dealing with is a one-off situation and it's not an indicator that you've got some kind of a systemic problem. Yeah. And you want to defend the reputation and the interest of the company. And this is where I think, sadly, for HR professionals, they get put between a rock and a hard place because they are their professional people. They may feel, you know what, this does not look perfectly okay. Mm. But at the same time, you know, they are employed by the organization and they want to mount the strongest defense for the organization. This is to, to both of you to answer. Um, you know, are you broadly optimistic about the, the direction of gender pay? And do you think that legislation has been a positive development for diversity? I am, because 10 years ago, if you would have asked me that we were going to have all of the kind of bigger corporations in this country doing the kind of work that they have done to report the gender pay gap. And there's all kinds of issues with it, all kinds of issues with the numbers. Absolutely, you know, for the first couple of years, we had partnerships out there that, you know, forgot to mention that, you know, we didn't tell you about how many or how few are actually a partner. You know, we we have had, uh, we've had a lot, but... The mere fact that those numbers are now on the table, they're getting cleaner and cleaner and cleaner, and they're showing more and more uh, important points of differential. That is a massive thing compared to where we were 10 years ago. There are lawyers out there now that have a real long uh, and, and quite distinguished set of cases under their belts so they know how judges and tribunals are going to look at this. All of this is fantastic because it's going to help women lodge, you know, good, successful campaigns, and it's going to help companies do better. So yes, I think sometimes just making a little noise helps. I agree with everything Moya said. I think would, in terms of legislation, we're definitely moving towards greater transparency. We've got gender pay gap reporting, ethnicity pay gap reporting is on the horizon, as well as potentially disability gap reporting and LGBTQ reporting, uh, potentially depending on the outcome of the general election. And we're also moving towards greater transparency within corporations, generally executive pay ratios and so on. So um, I think transparency is a good thing. It holds organisations to account. It holds individual business decision makers to account and creates more of an even playing field for everyone. 
So I am optimistic. All right. Well, I would like to thank you both for for being on the show and talking to us about the gender pay gap. Pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank Thank you very much. As it's the end of the year, we've gathered some of the brightest HR brains to take a look at the decade and discuss what employers can expect in the future. Joining us now are Nikki Costa. Nikki has many years of experience as a senior HR leader. Um, She currently runs her own consultancy, supporting businesses and executives through periods of change, transformation, uh, high growth or decline, and is a board member of the London HR Connection. Um, And John Boys is with us as well, who is the labour market economist at the CIPD. So we talk a lot about it being a period of upheaval and change in all kinds of sectors, not just HR at the moment. Um, But what do you guys think, the first thing I want to ask you, is what do you think the most significant factors have been affecting people management of the last decade? (laughs) Small question. Well, I could could talk about some of the big trends in the economy. So... The last decade really uh, is the post-recession era. Uh, Mm. Usually we talk about post-recession era, it wouldn't last very long. A few years would go by and we'd be back on track. Uh, But this one really casts a long shadow and has kind of permeated everything that we've done. So if you think about uh, 10 years ago, 2009, you had the Conservative government coming in 2010, austerity, but then you got this jobs boom. So we currently have record high employment levels, record low unemployment levels. Uh, and I think you see this in, in the HR world as well. So one of the um, things that I've been doing is looking at the number of uh, people who work in HR over the last 10 years. Uh, and we can see that this has grown and the proportion of the workforce who work in HR has grown. But not only that, of those roles, so going from the kind of the most senior directors and managers right down to administrative HR occupations, it's more and more managers, directors, more more that strategic function. So I think uh, H, the story of HR over the last 10 years has been quite an interesting one. Their role in the economy is uh, more important as we kind of, the economy matures and we transition from, uh, you know, the manufacturing and into much more heavily service oriented and uh, businesses are looking to add value through these kind of auxiliary functions if they can get hr right that's where they can add more value so that's uh, kind of big broad trends and how they quickly feed into hr i think hr is kind of at the center of some of these big trends and how do you think that's affecting the profession on kind of an individual level if we're seeing more and more people um getting involved in hr does that sort of is that a good sign for the industry or actually does that mean that the job becomes more difficult or more competitive well i think if the numbers are growing which is what i've seen then that means it's a good time to be in hr so uh there's a demand for those expertise there's more and more people particularly for the more strategic more managerial expertise that now's the time to get in it means that the prestige of the profession i think is increasing um, so if we take kind of 10 years ago as our, our benchmark, just in terms of um, its importance in the debate. So I think that if we look at the workplace as somewhere that policymakers are interested in, that's maybe been a bit of a neglected area. So you might hear people talk about we've got a productivity puzzle, we need to do things around skills and infrastructure. But I think more and more there's this tension on the workplace and the actors who can actually affect that change are increasingly seen as the HR and learning and development functions. So, yeah, I think for an individual, your role in the the broader game is more prominent. Yeah. Um, And Nikki, so you have extensive experience in the industry and you work with all sorts of different companies over the last 10 years what have you seen as being the most significant sort of factors affecting that and the culture? Yeah, well, I mean, just to build on what on what, what John was saying and looking at that from a 
from an operational HR point of view. Post-recession, absolutely, uh, what that drove was a complete shift in mindset from shifting priorities from HR leaders from simply getting best in class processes right on succession planning and leadership development much more to trying to understand and get your arms around the um, and we're we're talking primarily Western Europe now a much higher you know rate, rate of employment but trying to snag the best talent and the best skills in the marketplace and how do we do that at the same time when the other big shift is more uh, you know more and more millennials entering um, the workforce post their first job let's say and the different perspectives and goals that they have in terms of um, what work means to them and what is uh, what is interesting and engaging for them going forward so we've really moved away from HR let's say being and I hate to use the word support function because because for me HR is very much a business function just focuses on one of the two biggest assets that any organization has which is people so people and the money into more about how do we get greater efficiency and productivity through enabling the workforce to deliver m- much more um, uh, creatively much more in a much more agile way going forward so less process much more enablement and trying to really focus on what gets what can we do to get the best people and then once we've got them keep them and get the best out of them it's a really um, it's, it's a really big shift John, on, from on, your on technology, uh, I don't know if this is controversial, but I'm always so underwhelmed by technology, right? So <laughs> I think if you go back 15 years and you went to a workplace, you'd probably see about 2004 is when we had flat screen TVs and everyone had broadband pumped into their desk. So the kind of material conditions that we work in, they've not changed a great deal. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you think the uh, the iPhones, the first smartphone was released in 2007, maybe it's taken four or five years for it to really penetrate the market so everyone's got one. So around about 2013, 14, then we're all starting to use this tech and the, the app industry's building. That, I think, is one of the big innovations. And it's kind of hard to see how these things happen. I mean, just to get here today, I loaded up an app that told me exactly which train to take and which not to you know I was able to see emails and answer them we're we're kind of connected in a way that we weren't before by so many different points of access if you look if you sit in your living room and you think how many devices in here um, have access to the internet and obviously some people feel that that might be blurring the line between work and home I'm not completely convinced because I think we still uh, you can sort of take it or leave it a bit with mm. your device but so a little bit under underwhelmed really by technology uh it's not done a lot i don't think the technology of the last 10 years has been transformative as transformative as the technology of the 10 years before that mm. um i mean if you think about the pace of change in the 80s or the 90s at which you know people were every year you knew you were going to get paid a lot more that yeah. a new gadget was mm-hmm. coming to come out but uh, I think it's a bit plateaued. I'm not I'm not that impressed. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. people say looking forwards that we're going to have AI and robots and they're going to really upend things again. Mm-hmm. Not not sure that they will. You know, I think we, <laughs> I think the future of work will be more 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 of the same. People, you know, physically coming to a location, sitting mm-hmm. in front of their computers and interacting in much the same way as we've done for the last 15 years. We've started talking a little bit about the future. I'm going to ask you both now with the huge proviso that we're recording this the day before the general election so there's a lot of factors that we don't know the answer to right now but i'm looking ahead to next year in the next 10 years what do you both see 
what is coming for the uh, HR sector? Um, I can go. I mean, I think it's almost uh, guaranteed that the Conservatives will win and they'll get a majority. That's kind of in the bag. But at the same time, uh, in the past, that's been guaranteed before and things don't always turn out. (laughs) Um, I think the next 10 years, the last three years for me has just been um, about Brexit in all the work that I do. And I think that that is a... Uh, a 10 year project there will not be a, a deadline it will you know there's too many things to in the same way as the last 10 years have just ha- been about the, the post-recession era mm. it didn't get over quickly this will be the kind of thing that characterizes it so um, we recently launched at CIPD a manifesto for work so our idea of what's important and um, my focus was on the key challenges so um, when we talk about earnings not having moved for the last 10 years then we need to get productivity kick-started and these sort of things are really dependent on well we believe that the workplace again is going to be a much more important role so it's about hr doing that strategic role of enabling and getting the most out of people Uh, so that's what i think the next 10 years will be with any luck we you know we get that product to be rolling again but then it's also we've been quite lucky in that the last 10 years more so even have been just economic expansion there's not been a a downturn and i think a lot of people are now starting to get quite nervous because there are global factors at play there are uh, a slowing rate of growth globally and uh, a sort of manufacturing recession globally so uh, there could be a downturn and in which case we really uh, don't know what would happen I mean that would be bad all of this good work that's been done over the last few years to boost the employment rate and the number of people in work that could that could change so after the last recession lots of people uh, we didn't have a big increase in unemployment but uh, who's to say that that would happen after after the next one so I reckon we're almost guaranteed a downturn in the next 10 years Brexit will be a long-term trend and with any luck we can get productivity moving again. Nikki do you agree? Um, I do agree from a macroeconomic point of view and that's that's how we all need to look at businesses and 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 sectors and industries I think the immediate concerns for a lot of operational HR people regarding the B word regarding Brexit <laughs> is what will what will happen in terms of employment protection and employment regulation will we will we walk away from some of the um, protections that we've had um, through e- EU directives or not and then also you know talent and where the one of the goals is, is of, of Brexit is to restrict immigration or certainly control immigration uh, what is that going to do to our talent pools um, here in the UK I think the other the other big one for me which is on a sort of wider level almost despite Brexit is as companies grow, become more agile, less structured, more fluid in pretty much everything that we're doing, the whole value chain, not just not, not just on the people side, the challenge for HR professionals to, for me is how do you keep people connected? How do you feel? How do you get people to still feel um, engaged with a brand, a mission, to still feel that they have a purpose in work, to be able to still communicate and collaborate, even though we're getting much more virtual in the way that we are uh, organising ourselves necessarily, because because we have to be agile by, by definition uh, to remain competitive. But how do you keep the human element in that, which is so important for when people come together, collaborate, have ideas, build things, grow things and feel that they belong to something. Because we, we still all have that basic primary need to feel um, that we're doing something of value and, and contributing. Thank you very much for that discussion, guys. We're now going to have, as it's Christmas time... Um, and Is it? <laughs> <laughs> have you not seen? No. <laughs> 
We're going to have a little festive quiz. Are you up for a festive quiz? Yes, please. Yes. We've got some uh, festive headgear as well. Um, would you like to tell us what you what have you chosen to wear? I've got some <coughs> very attractive antlers with some bells on. Ooh. Yeah, I've got an elf hat, and I think I have the noisiest bell. <laughs> <laughs> Your ears are fabulous. May I say you both look smashing? <laughs> so the quiz is a fill in the blanks from headlines that we've cherry picked out from the year. We're going to give you a headline. We're going to blank out the word, and you've simply got to guess what the word is. Does that make sense? It does. It does. It does. Okay. Okay, so the first question is, Nikki, um, and this is a headline. HR and recruitment have the worst what etiquette, according to a forecom poll? The worst welcome etiquette. The worst Almost. welcome etiquette. Close, close. John, do you want to have a go? Telephone. Telephone. <laughs> is that the answer? It is the oh, answer. Yes. <laughs> All right, so, John, according to a Perkbox study about childhood career ambitions, aspiring what are the most likely to end up working in HR? Hmm. Aspiring... Can I not just say HR? I mean, I'm sure lots of kids aspire to work in HR. <laughs> you can. <laughs> uh, but I won't. I'm going to say teachers. You're going to say teachers. Nikki. Politicians. You're both wrong. <laughs> it was... Police officers. Oh. If you aspire to be a police officer, you're probably going to end up in HR. Right. There okay. you go. So yeah. I guess uh, HR workers have a good sense of justice. Maybe? Yeah, I'd yeah. say so. Fairness. Yeah. So the next headline: Seventeen percent of workers would take a pay cut in order to bring what to work? Their dog. You are correct. It's ah! a dog. People love their pets. <laughs> no hesitation on that one. Okay. According to the Times. People who have what are generally viewed as less qualified. People who have what? Oh, tattoos. Oh! <laughs> so with confidence. <laughs> it comes up a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so another one for you, Nikki. Mm-hmm. Uh, the HR chief of the government of the US state of Iowa was asked to resign after his obsession with what got out of hand. <laughs> oh gosh uh, TV reality shows John would you like to take oh, no, a guess? It's not like Donald Trump is it? It's not Oh no um, <laughs> The answer is um, Tupac Shakur Oh right oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. he, reported, he reportedly hosted Tupac Fridays every week uh, um, yeah. and was asked to leave after he emailed all 4,300 staff to mark what would have been uh, Tupac's birthday <laughs> Wow <laughs> Okay, John, yeah. a man who was being fired brought what to a meeting? Is it a box of cereal? And I only say that because I know someone... <laughs> no, 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 no. I know someone who... Uh, they were asked to come to the boss's office and he thought, this is it, I'm being made redundant. And you're not allowed to go back to your desk and he just bought a new box of cereal. So he took the box of cereal with him uh, into the meeting and sure enough, he was made redundant. Had to leave by the back door, but I mean, it was a full, it was like a new box of cornflakes. So. <laughs> it's been kept a cereal. Yeah, yeah, you've got to keep something. He thought, yeah. you may have fired me, but at least I've got my breakfast. That's right. I'm afraid it wasn't cereal. Oh, wasn't. oh no. Nikki, his Which mum. His mum. Ah. It's close. Oh. <laughs> it was an emotional support clown. <laughs> a clown? So this guy dressed up like a clown and came and sat with him while he was, while he was being fired and sort of, you know. I don't know. That is a great something. service to offer. <laughs> well, thank you very much for taking part in that yes. quiz, everybody. I think John won. Uh, oh, yeah. But uh, everyone's a winner <laughs> in HR. <laughs> <laughs>
And it's time to bring in the sector's good Samaritan solving your problem with his HR of gold, Tim Pointer. <laughs> a Neil Young reference. Now we're talking. Yep. So, Tim, this month's question is quite a detailed one. They've said, I recently resigned from my HR role after almost two years of being with a tech firm. The organisation isn't in great financial shape and there was recently a massive restructure. So at the time, I thought I might be made redundant. I sent out a few job applications just to be safe and ended up getting an offer of a better job. Leaving my current job was a tough decision, but this felt like an offer I couldn't refuse. Ever since I gave my notice, my boss and a few colleagues have been making me miserable and it feels like they're trying to guilt trip me into staying. They keep saying things like, you've left us in a bad situation and nobody else can do what you do. And my boss even implied that if the organisation goes under, it'll be partially my fault. I know that leaving on the heels of a restructure was inconvenient, but I've given almost a month's notice and begun to create extremely detailed documentation for the transition, but my boss still thinks this isn't enough. Whenever I recommend somebody to take over a project of mine, my boss says they're too busy or not competent enough to handle it. Now I've got a lot of guilt and anxiety about leaving this job and I dread going into work every morning. What can I do about this? Is my boss acting irrationally? It feels really personal, but people leave jobs all the time, so I can't understand why this feels different. You could really hear it in your voice as you read that, the weight of this. You feel that weight. Yeah. It's awful to be in in this situation. Okay, the first practical thing to say is that every organisation, when it goes through a restructure, unsettles people. And when you unsettle people, they have to look after themselves. And therefore, they'll look to see what else is out there. This happens all the time. And therefore, it's a very, very known case scenario that when you settle down the organisation after a restructure, you get a spike in resignations. And you cause that as an organisation. The individual, as our correspondent here says, only looks because of the restructure. Any experienced manager knows that this is very common. Now, how do you seek to then embed someone into an organisation when you have caused this discord and they resign? Do you offer them a fantastic new role? Do you look at their salary? Do you look at their development? What you definitely do not do is guilt trip the individual, which is exactly the situation that we have here. And what again is fascinating is this person is in their final four weeks of employment, and yet they're still committed to finding solutions with the examples they've given in terms of the handover, the detailed documentation, the thoughtfulness about who else could pick up projects. Really great evidence of their application to the job. They are leaving with good grace. And what's fascinating is they're being much more professional than their manager or the overall team. So I really feel for this individual because, you know, the end of that description, there's this piece of, you know, is this making you sick? Is this having such an impact on the individual? You know, their mental health is obviously suffering because of the way they're now being treated. And yet this is not of your making and I want to say that to our correspondent this is not of your making you are being the grown up here you're the one that's acting pro- uh, professionally and amongst all of this you have to look after you you are not accountable for the overall performance of the business and you are not accountable for the fact that you were put at risk of redundancy and you have found yourself what I hope is a cracking new role that you're going to step into enjoy and progress with your career. A lot of people in that situation I think they've said that their co-workers are literally making their working life miserable since this new role has come up for them. A lot of people in that situation might be tempted to kind of be like, oh, well, whatever then, I don't care. If you're going to make this very difficult for me, then I'm not going to try and make it any easier for you. Sounds like they haven't done that, but how do you sort of recommend someone 
who's you know haven't got much time left at work is there still a value to making sure those relationships don't sour or is I personally take the view that your career is a long long time a really fascinating book by uh, Linda Gratton one of the professors at the London Business School one of my reflections the reason I referenced that book is because in order to have a long and successful career it's about relationships and it's about reputation and the way you leave it is really unfair but the way we start and the way we exit are very memorable. Mm. And actually, if you think about as human beings, we kind of forget the bit in the middle. We ask questions like, so how did you meet? What was it like leaving? We have leaving dues. You know, we, we, with certain pieces that we tend to celebrate and we can forget the middle bit. The middle bit could be years. Mm. But beginnings and endings are really important in the way that our neurology operates. So the way that our correspondent exits is really important. Everyone else... The level of maturity is very concerning. They have the ability to rise above that and to leave on their terms with maturity, with professionalism, so that as people themselves get out of what is obviously quite a toxic environment, I would suggest, then they'll look back and go, actually, you looked after yourself, but professionally, appropriately, and you did everything you could to support us and the organisation. That's the way you want to be remembered. This will sound very blunt, but I remember some advice I was given a long time ago, which was the graveyard is full of people who thought the organisation was dependent upon them. The organisation will carry on. You know, that's the truth of it. And the fact is this person is obviously respected and regarded for their work because otherwise they would not have come through the restructure. And therefore, they are very well respected. And because of their ability, they've secured a new role. It's time to leave with good grace on their terms, head held high and move on. More broadly, I suppose, is there ever a bad time to leave your job and should a company or a boss ever take it personally? It's difficult. We're human beings. You know, it's, it's um, <laughs> you know, over the years, I'm thinking of the various resignation conversations that <laughs> members of my team have had with me. And I'm, I'm allowed to feel sad. And sometimes I'm allowed to, you know, and I'm completely allowed to say, I'm really disappointed. But there's always a but because I always go I'm really disappointed because I so enjoy working with you and I respect everything you've contributed to the business but I'm going to get over that and I'm already excited about what you're going on to do and I want to understand more about why you've made this decision Mm. so that we can learn as an organization and that's you know that's being honest and authentic because you're allowed to be sad when someone leaves the team because you know, particularly when you are, have the privilege of building teams, as I've had for many years, you take a huge amount of pride as to who you bring into your team. You believe in the team, you invest in the team, the communication, the camaraderie, the trust mm. is so important. So it is difficult when someone leaves and it's okay to, okay to say that. But part of being a leader is that self-management. You show some of your emotion, you don't show all of it. So that's all from that HR podcast today and for the rest of the decade. A big thank you to our guests, Moya Green, Hannah Netherton, Nikki Costa, John Boys, and of course, Tim Pointer. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. Keep up to date on all things HR and that HR podcast on our website, peoplemanagement.co.uk. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to see your comments. My name is Lily Howlett. And I'm Siobhan Palmer. 
The producer for this episode was Anishka Tate and Rethink Audio. Um, we wish you all a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays and a lovely New Year. And we will see you in the 20s. Ooh, in the 20s. <laughs> Cheers to that. Cheers to that. 